Welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. My name is Meg, and my sweet, beautiful Conway titties is going to tell us all about <laughs> Lucille Beggs Rinaldi. If you have been a longtime listener, you will remember that back in the day, we had a review that said, Connie always sounds like she's stuffy. And here we are. Another we have December. had multiple reviews saying, why is Connie always sick? Yeah, it's, dude, I don't know. I don't know, man. I like the scratchy voice. I think it sounds cute. That's actually why, I mean, we, we take our annual Christmas break every year, but we couldn't record because this is the first time I've had, I was like, oh, and that's just, hello. Uh, that sounds funny. Uh, no, I think oh. you sound great. Tell, tell us about Lucille. Well, Lucille Beggs and Frank Rinaldi both grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut. Both Lucille and Frank were brought up in good homes. Lucille was born on October 9th, 1929. She was the only daughter of a Waterbury police sergeant. She had one brother. Frank was born on March 15th, 1929. The two seemed to be destined to fall in love someday. They spent a lot of time together. Frank even took Lucille to her first high school prom in 1947. After high school, Lucille did the damn thing. She attended Albertus Magnus College in New Haven. She was so smart, and that is what several stories said about her, like articles that I read, that she was smart and that she was determined. She received her master's degree in guidance at Fairfield University in 1961. She even went on to study law for a year before beginning to work as a school teacher. Where Lucille decided to stay close to home, Frank took the route of going further away to school. Um, for high school, he went to prep school at the Taft School, which is a private boarding school. He then received his bachelor's in English at Georgetown. He worked for the CIA for two years. He joined the Army for three years. And then he headed to Chapel Hill in 1956 for a year of graduate school. They sound like a real power couple. Yeah, like just, okay, you do your thing, I'll do mine. Mm -hmm. It seems very ahead of its time for mm -hmm. the 50s and 60s. Uh-huh. He then took a teaching job at the University of Missouri. He even dabbled in advertising for a year before returning to Chapel Hill in 1960, where he enrolled in the Ph.D. program again in English. And honestly, like him kind of dabbling in a little bit of everything reminded me of you. Like how you're just like, I do all the do things. This. I'm going to do this. Yeah, I just I'm like, oh, I would like to do that. And then you just do it. That makes makes sense. Yeah. And. Lucille and Frank didn't necessarily have, like, a full-fledged relationship during their 20s when they were out, like, conquering the world. But they eventually reconnected, and the high school sparks flew again, and by 1962, they were engaged to be married. A year later, they were married on July 31st, 1963. Um, when I say they were, like, good families, like, they were pretty well off. Lucille's family had a summer house on the coast of Connecticut, and the two honeymooned there. The, um, for the first like little bit of the, their honeymoon, they were there by themselves, and then 
Lucille's brother and his wife came and hung out with them for the last part of it. So after a summer of wedded bliss, the couple returned to Chapel Hill on September 2nd, 1963. Lucille had been hired to teach at the local junior high, but to her new principal's surprise, the new move didn't last very long, and by September 9th, so just a week later, she had returned to Waterbury and went back to work at the school she was previously hired at. Just, she like, so they, she moved in with her husband, her new husband, and then she was like, after a week, she's like, you know what, I want to go back to my other thing. Yeah, she told the school at, in Chapel Hill that she had a family emergency, but Frank said, said that. What family emergency? Frank said that she just told them that because she didn't want to hurt their feelings, but she was unhappy with the workplace situation and that the pay was significantly less than what she was used to being paid. Okay. And really, Frank was already kind of set up in Chapel Hill. He had friends there because he had went to graduate school. So like fellow graduate students, um, he had moved out of the graduate store, student dorms to an apartment on North Street. But he kind of like had his little crew already. And I feel like Lucille didn't feel like she fit into that. Um, like Frank, she was out of place in his group. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Frank did have a roommate, but he went back home for the summer, thinking that when he got home in the fall, he would have to find a place to live because Lucille was Lucille was going to be living there, you know. Mm-hmm. But when he got back and found that Lucille had decided to go back to Waterbury, so him and another guy named Jerry moved back into the apartment, and all three of them were splitting expenses. Kevin, not a bad gig. Kevin and Frank were pretty good friends um, prior to them all living in this dorm or in the apartment together because they had been dorm mates. And even he said that he didn't think that it was a red flag in their relationship that Lucille had went home. She was very independent, and Frank seemed to respect that. And when they left, the couple still made time to see each other. They either met in New York City or Connecticut, and all throughout the fall of 1963, they stayed in touch. They wrote letters. They talked on the phone. They even spent, like, Thanksgiving together in Waterbury. Um, Lucille knew that Frank wasn't going to be in Chapel Hill forever, that he could write his dissertation closer to home. So it wasn't a big deal for them to live apart when the ultimate goal was eventually they were going to move in together. But they had already spent an entire year living apart. So this was nothing new. It was, like, just a little bit longer. Like, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. Yeah, why do I need world? Yeah, why do I need to uproot my life when I am comfortable where I am? Which fair, agreed. I would have done the same thing, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and honestly, Lucille was kind of a pioneer before this, or for this, like you touched on it before. They were kind of ahead of their time, like her being this strong, independent woman, like doing her own thing. It's the early sixties, but she's like, you know what? I don't really care. I'm well-educated. I'm a boss bitch. I'm going to do my own thing. So this is how they spent the first six months of their marriage. But during the first couple months of marriage, the Rinaldis got a surprise when they found out that Lucille was expecting a baby. Uh Uh-oh. It's throwing a wrench in their plans, huh? And, well, even though the couple seemed to be elated, it was news that they were kind of keeping close to the chest. Which, again, it's not 
uncommon because this couple was like notoriously private. But even her family was not aware of the baby. That seems weird because I feel like usually if like a, you know, a lady's having a baby, she's going to tell like her family first. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she had an aunt that would later say that even the news of their engagement was a little bit of a surprise to her family. Like they didn't realize things were as serious as what they were. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of like, uh, okay. And they were even home for Thanksgiving and they didn't mention the baby. And so she's like four months pregnant at the time. And there was just no, they were like, we, we're not talking about it. Yeah. Like I don't, again, I wasn't there. I'm not sure like exactly <laughs> the thought process behind it. But Christmas came and Lucille went back to Chapel Hill to spend the holidays with Frank. On December 3rd, Frank's best friend, John Sipp, and his wife came over. The couple got there. They started planning a trip to Durham for Christmas presents since Chapel Hill was limited in the offerings that they had for stores. Kind of like, okay, so small town. We're going to go to the bigger town to get stuff that we need. Supplies. Nothing like wait until the last minute, Frank, December 23rd, get it together. I was, that was me this year. I can't say. A damn thing. (laughs) And apparently Frank had this like huge flashy Lincoln car with like the spare tire mounted on the back. Lucille had found it for him in an auction. Mm -hmm. But he frequently let his roommate Kevin use it to pick up women because. That's what you do for your friends. You let them use your hot rod Lincoln to pick up chicks. Um, So to the outside world. So Kevin or. Sorry, Frank had let Kevin take the car home for the holidays. So to neighbors, it looked like no one was home because this big flashy Lincoln hadn't been parked outside for several days. It's something important to remember. That the car wasn't there. The car wasn't there. It looked like no one was home. But the Rinaldis were home. So Christmas Eve rolls around and around 8.45 a.m., John Sipp picked him up in John's red and white VW microbus, which I love that. Cute. He pulled up, he honked the horn, and Frank got in and said, together again, baby. And the two set off. They hadn't been together because they were, he was in the other, or just like, was he referencing? Like the two of them, like. Like, if me and you got together, like, if I'd be like, you come there again, baby. Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. But that, I mean, that's, the undertones in that are going to set the world ablaze. That together again, baby. So the two of these men get together, and they set off on the 12-mile drive to buy gifts for their wives and John Sipp's two sons. Frank left for Durham at 8.45 in the morning, and by 6 o'clock that night, he was in jail for the murder of his wife, Lucille. What? Yeah. So first, I'm going to tell you about Frank's whereabouts on the day his wife was murdered. I feel like that's a good place to start. The men stopped for gas at a Sunoco between Chapel Hill and Durham. 
The attendant who worked there knew Sip and remembered seeing him at the gas station that morning. He didn't know Frank, but he did say that he saw a man with John. So they arrived to the gas station about 9 a.m., and they came from the direction of Chapel Hill, and when they left, they were heading towards Durham. And this is back when the attendant actually pumped your gas, so that's how he knew which way he was coming from. John Sipp got to Durham, stopped by his insurance office, like where he worked. Mm -hmm. And while he was doing that, Frank is like, I'm just going to go head over to the mall. Sipp walked up to his office and he was like, shit, I left my keys in the car. So he turns around, heads back to the car, and he actually sees Frank there. And they're like, hey, real quick, let's just head to Rose's, which is like a five and dime store. Because they were on the hunt for a toy sword set for John Sipp's two sons. This is bit like this is what they're gonna look for all day. This damn toy this sword toy set. Toy sword set. It's like oh, the right. gift of the year. In 1960, what was it? Three. 1963. Toy swords. Big hit. <laughs> um, but they were unable to find them at the ro- at Roses. So they headed to another drugstore to look for more toys, specifically these swords. They talked to the manager there before they headed to the lunch counter where they ordered coffee. A colleague of John saw them at the counter and testified that he drank coffee with both of them and that this was around 9.30. So, so far, all the times that they would later tell police are matching up. Mm-hmm. And just as luck would have it, another colleague came in and sat with them after the other one left bringing the total time at the drugstore to about 10.30 a.m. Sip was like, okay, Frank, this is fun, but I still got to stop by my office. I got shit to do. Mm -hmm. So Frank went back with him to his office. They hung out for about 10 minutes while John did his work. Then they went to two more stores, still looking for those sword sets, before heading to downtown Durham, where they would get gifts for their wives. A clerk testified that she helped Frank buy a maternity dress and that they were there between 11 and 11.30. And she was specific in remembering the time because she said that she was ready to go to lunch, but another clerk had went because she was helping Frank. And so she couldn't go to lunch until this other clerk got back. So They cut into her lunchtime. I would be pissed too. I would remember that. Excuse me. I remember them. I was supposed to go to lunch, but I had to buy this maternity dress. They stopped me from eating and now I'm hangry. Yeah, I'm with her. And this continued throughout the morning. They bounced around stores and people saw them all over town. They went to Sears. They went to another mall. They went to different shopping districts. The two headed back to Chapel Hill. And they arrived at the shopping district on Franklin Street around 12.30, 12.45. Once they got there, John stopped at the post office so he could check his mailbox. And then they went to a hardware store because they were looking for a sewing set. And the clerk was like, yeah, they were here. I, and I guess like her time was like when they were asking her what time they were there. She's like, look, it's the day before Christmas. I've had no lunch break. I don't know what time it was. It was sometime in the morning. Um, Which, I mean, it is the day before Christmas, so it's going to be. This is before Amazon people, you know, (laughs) you had to go. You had to actually go and get get the things. It must have been terrible. 
God, I can't even imagine not being able to sit on my fat ass and my couch and just order all this shit that I want to buy. Just be like, hey. Even even though I was shopping like two days before Christmas, I was still just putting orders in and then driving up and picking it up. Like I did oh, not have 100%. to go in one store. A hundred percent. After this, the pair headed to Chapel Hill Tire. And this is around one o'clock. The owner said, like testified that John came to the door and a man that he didn't know who he assumed to be Frank. And I get the vibe that John is kind of well-known around these areas because everyone's like, oh yeah, I knew who that was. I didn't know the guy he was with, but I knew John. But the hardware store had closed right at one o'clock for their annual holiday party. And they knocked on the door right as they were closed. So he's like, yeah, they did come here. It was one o'clock. I know for a fact that that's the time that it was. So they leave and they arrived back to Frank Rinaldi's North Street apartment around 1.30. Frank put the key in the door, opened it, and immediately told John, oh my God, somebody's killed and robbed my wife. What? At what time? This is 1.30 p.m. Okay. Lucille Rinaldi had been violently struck on the head with a large flashlight, which likely knocked her unconscious. Her attacker then stuffed a sock into her mouth, tightly knotted a scarf around it and her nose, and then forced a small pillow hard against her face until she died. The 32-year-old woman was not sexually assaulted and nothing was taken from the apartment. Investigators believed that the killing took probably no longer than five minutes. And... What really sucks is earlier that year, the county commissioners had budgeted for the county to hire an actual medical examiner instead of the elected coroner. But at the time of Lucille's murder, the position had not been filled. Oh, so there wasn't anyone to investigate it? No, they put the, the coroner put the, like the time of death between 8 or, yeah, it's like 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. I want to remind you, they found the body at 1.30. So what was happening during that other time? Well, it's like they found the body at 1.30 and the coroner's like, oh, yeah, you know what? It could have been between whatever and 5 p.m. And it's like, mm-hmm. how can it be between that and 5 when the body was found at 1.30? Yeah. I get the idea that you don't really know what you're talking about. Frank actually paid for an, an autopsy by a pathologist at uh, University of North Carolina's medical school. And he determined that the body temp showed that Lucille had died no earlier than 10 a.m. and that strangulation was the cause of death. He said, unfortunately, that her death was not instant and she did suffer and that the scarf tied over her nose, that she had the scarf tied over her nose and had been smothered by the pillow, insinuating that the murderer was not efficient and not really prepared for what they did. Police found no evidence of a forced entry, which is what led them to Frank. Frank was arrested almost immediately and also immediately called the only lawyer that he knew who just happened to be like this. He was a brand spanking new lawyer that Frank had just kind of met in passing. Um... They held a, it was kind of controversial because they held um, 
like a the normal hearing to like hear the charges and everything. Mm-hmm. And other than Frank just being there, at that point, there wasn't a lot of hard evidence connecting Frank to Lucille's death. But once the trial started, um, they had a hard time finding jurors because the majority of them already believed that Frank was guilty. And when they did get the final juror selections, they literally brought a kid in to draw the final names from a hat. How is that? That seems... Yeah, for a murder today. Who's Whose kid got to do that? Who brought their kid to work and they were like, hey, buddy, we need you to pull some names out of a hat today. Hey, Ted, how's Christmas break going? Like, let's, <laughs> let's do it. You want to you wanna help try a murder case? Um, I guess stuff like that was common back then. Like, they would make their, they would, like, narrow it down and they'd be like, all right, let's narrow it down even more. <laughs> Here we go. I don't know why that's the voice that I use anytime I, re- like, anytime, anytime I refer to, like, the 1960s and 70s, I do the same voice. Do it again. I want to hear it. No, I can't do it. I'm not. No, you can't do it because I, I can't. Asked. That's fair. So the trial didn't start until November 9th, 1964. And when that trial began, the prosecutors unleashed a whole slew of skeletons in the closet that really painted Frank in a bad light. So here's the tea, guys. A few months prior to Lucille's death, John Sipp sold Frank Rinaldi two life insurance policies. Oh, no. The policy on his wife was for $40,000, which is like about $300,000 in today's currency. And it contained a double indemnity clause in the case of an accidental death. He also purchased a $10,000 policy on his own life. However, he stopped paying the premiums on his policy several weeks before Lucille's death. At the same time, Frank Rinaldi, who was a student with very little money, borrowed $720, which is about $5,500 today, from the Bank of Chapel Hill and used that money to pay the premium on Lucille's policy through the end of December. He was Even running if, out of time. Mm-hmm. Even if he had not canceled the policy on himself, Someone could wonder why he would want Lucille and his child to collect only twenty grand if he died accidentally, but he would end up with eighty thousand dollars, which is like over half a million dollars if his wife came like his wife's life came to a, a tragic end. Mm-hmm. Additionally, investigators discovered that after purchasing the policies, Rinaldi's letters to his wife became more friendly. And that is when he encouraged her to come to Chapel Hill for a visit during Christmas. More friendly? What does that mean? I guess some of his letters, he was more curt with her. Like, it wasn't very lovey-dovey. It was like, just, hello, how are you? Hello, Lucille. It is I. I hope you are doing well. (laughs) Um, Investigation also revealed that Rinaldi was extra kind to his wife the last three days of her life. And people were like, yeah, this is because he intended to kill her and he didn't want her to get mad. Because, like, if she, if they got into an argument, she would just go home because she's a strong, independent lady who didn't need any of that bullshit. She so had he was, her own stuff. Yeah. So 
there are people who are also like, how much of this did John know about Frank? Mm-hmm. And then Frank apparently also started to question as early as their honeymoon. And like I told you before, his uh, Lucille's brother and his brother's wife, like, had went to the summer house with him for the last couple bit. Mm-hmm. And um, Frank started asking, like, her, his brother, his new sister-in-law, why his name wasn't on the property division of the summer house since they were married. And wondered, like, you know, if anything ever happened to Lucille, who would be entitled to her share? Would this, would I still get her share? Mm-hmm. And apparently this is something that he was very awkward and persistent with Lucille's sister-in-law, Clara. In the house, like I said, there was no evidence of forced entry, but police did discover blood of Lucille's type on the shirt and pants that Frank was wearing that day. They also found a large flashlight that was bent as if it had been used to strike a hard object, such as a person, as well as a blood-stained pillow. Even more damaging. Even more damaging was the sworn testimony of a man named Alfred Fauci, who was a local handyman who claimed that Frank had offered him $500 to kill his wife while she was visiting during the Christmas holidays. Mm, Why would he do that? Why would he say that if it didn't happen? And, well, he's... Oh, Alfred said a lot of things, man. When Alfred refused, uh, apparently Frank then asked him if he would be willing to find someone else to do the deed. Mm-hmm. And sorry, guys, it's a little gross. Adding that raping, strangling, choking, or anything else the killer wanted to do was fine with him. What? According to Fauci, on the morning of... Tuesday, December 24th, he ran into Frank Rinaldi. He's one of these people that were just out and about that day and saw Frank and John out. And he, Frank allegedly told him, it's all over, Al. I did it. Mm. As if this wasn't, like, all of these bombs being dropped were shocking enough. Alfred also testified that Frank had made several sexual advances towards him. Oh. Which is where the together again baby when because pe- like they brought John to the stand and they made him testify what Frank said to him that day. And so mm-hmm. everyone's like, well, Frank is gay. And that's what is maybe that's Lucille what happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, keep going. The defense tried to paint Fauci in the light like he was the one that could have killed Lucille because he did have a key like an access to a key at some point like when he was their handyman so they were like he could have made a a copy well that's kind of what I was thinking when you said that like he was Mm -hmm. awfully quick to offer up a testimony when maybe it was him that was responsible for it and he was just trying to take the spotlight off of himself that's I have that thought too Mm mm-hmm John Sipp was brutally examined by the prosecution. They believed that the two, that John had sold him the insurance policies, giving him the motive because the two were in a romantic relationship and that the reasons for the problems in the Rinaldi marriage was because Lucille found out that Frank was homosexual 
And it was something that she didn't know before they were married. Mm -hmm. And they said that's part of the reason, like, did she discover his lifestyle that first week she was there and was like, nope, nope, and then head out. I don't know if I believe, I don't know if I believe, like, her finding out like that. But again, Mm -hmm. I don't know because I wasn't there. Yeah. The jury began deliberations at 4.09 on Tuesday, November 17th, 1964. They convened that whole day, and then by the next morning when they resumed, they had a verdict by 12.30 that day. Guilty. Quick, quick verdict. Mm -hmm. Frank Rinaldi was placed on death row seclusion, but not because he was sentenced to death, but for his own safety. He appealed almost immediately, making two basic contentions. That one, the evidence is not sufficient to establish that he was in any way responsible for his wife's death. And two, he is, in any event, because of prejudicial error occurring during the trial, entitled to have another jury pass on his guilt or innocence. Because the facts were whether or not Frank killed Lucille Mm -hmm. and their unborn baby. The trial became just central, like centralized around the fact on whether or not Frank was gay. That's uh, and you know, I mean, okay, I don't know if he did it or not because we're not to the end yet. But it feels like it might be um, like for that time, that period of time, like them focusing on that is oh, just a way to get it done with and be exactly. like, this is obviously him, and this is why it was. It's like the, oh, let's let's tell everyone he's gay. And I know. We've just we've done this for so long that sometimes when you're telling me, like I feel like I can get it in the tone, like where it's going. I'm not sure if it is, but keep going. I want to know what's going on. Well, a news trial started on a year later on October eleventh, nineteen sixty-five, and this trial was different. The while the prosecution could introduce the testimony about the life insurance and some of the marriage struggle struggle. Ugh, some of the marriage troubles, most of it was struck from the testimony, but the homosexuality was aspect was not able to be introduced. Alfred Fauci did testify again about Frank, you know, asking him to murder Lucille. Mm-hmm. This time the trial lasted 20 days. And when they reached a verdict on October 11th, 1965, Frank mm-hmm. Rinaldi was a free man. He was found not oh. guilty of murdering his wife. So he was guilty, and then they were like, actually, psych, he's not. Mm-hmm. But this would be the last time that someone would be, trusted, would be tried for the murder of Lucille Rinaldi because this case is still completely cold. There's been no leads, no new evidence, nothing. Any secrets what that Frank... Think? I think Frank killed her. You do? Yeah, because... The times, there were times when, like when I was reading in the book, because I read a book about this, where um, they were shopping, especially like with the the late, um, once they got back to Chapel Hill and the lady was like, I don't know what time it was. It's the day before Christmas. They could have been anywhere. That They were only 500 yards away from that apartment. He could have went, murdered his wife and came back. It just seemed, but... I don't know that not 
the not have there not being any forced entry is the part where I'm kind of like, uh, that does make it a little sus. Yeah. You know, could it have yeah. been someone else who just assumed they were all gone and that Frank wasn't home and then they were shocked when Lucille was there? Because it's not like she was there often. Yeah, that's true. You know, after that one case you told me about where the guy like went to jail for a long time and they realized it wasn't him and it was just like a wrong place, wrong time situation. Mm -hmm. I truly don't believe, I don't know what could happen anymore. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, that case shook me to my core. Um, and I kind of don't necessarily, like, I, I'm i with you. I think that, yeah, it probably was him. It's like one of those, I could see absolutely why people would think that Frank killed Lucille. Mm-hmm. But I also could see where he didn't do it. Um, any secrets that Frank Rinaldi had died with him when he passed away in 2009. Um, after Lucille was murdered, he never married. He never had any children. Following the murder trial, he eventually worked in higher education. And he eventually retired as dean of Payer School at Payer School of Art in Hamden. But even some of Frank's own relatives didn't speak very kindly of him. Uh, one of his nieces said that I have nothing good to say about Frank Rinaldi and neither will anyone else down here in Florida. My father, Paul Rinaldi, didn't speak to him from 1986 until he died in 1988. 19, 1998. Um, you know, side note, every time you say Rinaldi, I think of Princess Diaries. I did too. <laughs> I did too. It was yeah. really hard. Thermopolis, Rinaldi. It's, it, every time you say it, I'm like, there it is in my head, blinking up. Um, Charlie Mann, she, they had researched and studied the murder of Lucille Rinaldi. They said, if Frank Rinaldi is innocent, then for the only time I can discover in Chapel Hill history, someone randomly walked into a small student apartment with the intent of killing in broad daylight someone they did not know. They had no other motive, and strangely, there was never a similar crime in Chapel Hill history. And also, like, she wasn't, um, she wasn't, like, sexually assaulted, and usually I think. I thought. Yeah, when you see in, like, random cases like that, like, she was stalked before, right? Or, like, someone was watching her and they broke in, or, like, they broke in and took advantage of her. Um, I. But, like, someone who just wanted her gone. Seems like they wouldn't do that. I honestly, after Fauci came forward and was like, you know, he tried hiring me. I'm like, who else did he do that to? Yeah. How many people did he try? Because to hire? it was very convenient that he was out in public so many different places where so many people could see him. You know, it's like you made yourself very known that day. Yeah. And Mm. I don't know. And I will Seems say, regar regardless of whether or not he killed her, it should not have been about his sexuality. It should absolutely be about the fact that he was a shitty husband who had his wife murdered. Like, I, you know, be pissed about that, but it should not have been about his sexuality. I know, but again, we've done a lot of these, and so we're, I feel like we're a little bit inclined to be like, well, what else could have happened? 
Exactly. Even though a lot of times we're like, fuck that guy. What a piece of shit. We've seen so many crazy things in the days before there was like widespread like DNA analysis and all of this to where I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, it could have been anything. It could have been some fucking random guy who had his house mixed up and could have been some lady she pissed off. Or it could have been <clears throat> he had two other roommates. Could have been one of them. And they exactly because they were like, in love. I was like, Kevin, what happened to you? Like, where were you? And where was the other roommate? I didn't find any other information other than he lived there sometimes. What the hell did one of those people do? Did they, were they roommates for the next 40 years of their lives? <laughs> one of those situations. It's one of those, was like, and he lived with his roommate for the next 40 years. He never Lifelong had any friends. children or remarried. Lifelong friends. Lifelong friends. Ta-da, ta-da. Mm. <laughs> but honestly, like, it pisses me off because Lucille was a fucking go, like, she just yeah, very before her time, getting her master's degree. That's crazy. That's crazy stuff. I mean, it seems crazy to me. Maybe it's not. Maybe I. Uh, Maybe we I, have this like image in my head of like where n- women didn't leave the house until the nineties, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like a, an idealized sense of what it was, but it seems like it was ahead of its time. Yeah, I think so. I think it more so. It would be different if they weren't married. More so to be like, hey. We're married, but you can go away to work, but I'm going to stay where I have my shit together. Mm-hmm. And also for, I don't know, for a husband to end that time, just be like, oh, yeah, you can have your own apartment and live separately and go do like those things and we'll just be married. Seems weird, too. I was telling my husband about this case mm-hmm. and he's like, they didn't live together. And I was like, no, nah, man, he's like, the husband didn't care that they didn't live together. And I was like, no. He goes, and they thought that maybe he had a a boyfriend. And I was like, yeah, that's like the general consensus. And he's like, I mean, I could see it. Like, send your wife away and like hype her up to do her own thing so you could do your own <laughs> so thing. That, so that you can do your own thing. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And then when. Hear. But why? Like, why? Just to get the life insurance policy? Why kill her? Like, why not just not be with her? Because that's not profitable. That's not half a million dollar profitable. That's, well, what was it? $40,000 is like $300,000 today. Yeah, but with it being accidental death, it's it doubled it to $640,000. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. Well, six, 2023 money was 640, but then it was like 80, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Accidental but yeah, death. let us know. Let us know what you think about this one. But we're going to give you guys, we're going to give you a surprise because we're going to end this and then you're going to get a second episode right now. So here we go. Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, here are some ways that you can support Gruesome. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or a five-star rating on Spotify. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us. Follow us at Gruesome Podcasts on Instagram or TikTok and talk to us on our posts. Join the Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Patreon perks. 
Or if a one-time donation is more your thing, we have a Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and a PayPal via our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us your questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, and on Wednesdays, we're we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.